0: Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. So this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. And now let's take a look at what's hot this week in the world of science news. Diana, what have you got for us?
1: This week, a group of researchers from California have been able to spot the moment at which your brain recognises a face. And they've done this using the brain scanning technology known as FMRI, or Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. The team, led by Jesse Rissman, had their test subjects look at hundreds of faces from an image database. They were then shown a new set of faces, some of which had appeared in the database. As the subjects looked at each of these new pictures, the researchers scanned their brains to see if anything happened. And when the subjects did recognise a face, there was an identifiable pattern of neural activity in their brains. Now, according to the journal PNAS, where this was published, the team used software to recognise this pattern, as there were quite a few neurons to consider. And they found that this so-called neural signature, when a brain recognises a face, was consistent across all the test subjects. So it's likely that whenever any of us recognises a face, the same bits of our brain light up. There was one problem, however, in that sometimes the test subjects recognised a face even when they hadn't seen it before. And their brain activity was the same as with a genuine recognition. So if you wanted to take an fMRI of someone examining a police lineup, it wouldn't be able to rule out any false positives. And the scanning software can tell you if someone believes they recognise a face. But one of the key findings here, I think, is that the researchers have been able to pinpoint what happens when memories are triggered
0: because some people can't actually recognize faces there's a problem with the brain it's called prosopagnosia and this is where the region of the brain it's the superior temporal lobe that does face recognition isn't it that goes wrong perhaps someone has a brain injury or a stroke or something and this leaves the person although they are otherwise perfectly capable of recognizing someone's voice the thing that someone says even the smell of a person when they see photographs of faces they just can't tell one from another
1: yeah and you 'd probably find that that neural signature that they found in this in these test subjects just wouldn 't happen in people with that problem
0: so are you saying then that this could have forensic value whereby at the moment we might have a lineup and you rely on somebody going, oh, I think I might recognize that person number three in the lineup that perhaps instead you could show people a virtual lineup in a brain scanner and watch what their brain does, and this might be a more accurate or more effective way of working out whether or not someone really does recognise a potential criminal.
1: Well, potentially, yes, but as the researchers point out, what this scan reveals is if someone believes they recognise a face. So if they they think they recognise it, but actually they haven't seen it before, the scan won't be able to pick that up.
0: Well, certainly fascinating stuff. So maybe the courtroom will have to incorporate an MRI scanner in future. <laughs> Who knows? Thank you, Diana. Now, something that caught my eye this week is a paper in the journal Science. This is by researchers in Beijing. It's Yan Hui Lu and colleagues. And what they've found is that cultivating a pest-resistant GM crop strain can paradoxically create a whole new breed of bugs. So in other words, you swap one problem, solve that for another one. What they've done is to look at the impact of growing a genetically modified strain of cotton across northern China for the last 10 years. The strain of cotton they've been looking at is one called BT cotton and it's called that because the plant has had added to it the gene from a bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis which is an environmental bacterium. They've put into this the, the cotton a gene from this bacterium which is encoding a toxin and so this toxin kills certain types of plant pest and it's been very successful. In fact, 95% of the cotton grown in this bit of China is this GM strain and specifically it's been able to get rid of a major notorious cotton pest called the cotton bollworm. Previously, crop growers and cotton growers would have had to have put lots of pesticides on every year to stop this particular pest devastating their crops. They don't have to do that now. But, and there is a but, therein lies the problem. Because what's happened, although this major previous pest has now been dealt with, what has happened instead is that previously low-grade, low-level pests, which were there and would have been taken away by the spraying and therefore never became a nuisance, have instead been able to increase their numbers, because some of these pests are actually naturally resistant to the genetic modification and this toxin that's in the cotton now. One of these is called the myriad bug. And what's happened now is that because the, the farmers aren't spraying... As a result, these myriad bugs have reached very, very large levels and they're not fussy eaters, they don't just eat cotton. So they're amplifying in the cotton and then spreading over into adjacent uh, crop species and eating those as well. And so as the researchers point out in a quote from their paper, area-wide cultivation of transgenic crops, cambering with it various direct and indirect effects on ecological statuses of different organisms. And this needs to be assessed and anticipated in a comprehensive fashion. So what they're saying is that you can't just assume that if you go in there with GM technology and tackle one problem, there aren't going to be others. And, and it may be that the solution to this is maybe to reinstate a bit of spraying because then if you have a little bit of spraying, perhaps every few years you can stop the populations of these resistant bugs reaching plague proportions but let's not forget at the same time these GM crops have solved a major problem and farmers are not having to use large levels of insecticides that they would have had to have done previously which would have had all kinds of potentially knock-on effects for the environment and also for other species that are that not plant pests but are susceptible to the insecticide so in some respects it's still very good news
1: It does seem that wherever there's a niche to be exploited something's going to come along and exploit it
0: Unfortunately, nature is very good at doing that. Um, so, yes, the answer is you can't take for granted if you just put one barrier in the way. It's rather like the tide coming in. The water's probably going to find its way around the back of the wall, and that's exactly what's happened with this particular strain of GM crops.
1: Indeed, and also this week, researchers have found the chemicals that make mice scared stiff if they smell a predator, such as a cat, rat or snake. Publishing in the journal Cell, a team from California, again, wanted to know what it was about these predators that caused stress hormone levels in mice to rise and why they'd flatten themselves against the floor, even if the predator wasn't visible. Lisa Stowers and colleagues discovered that the trigger was a group of proteins found in urine and they're known as MUPS, or major urinary proteins and these are secreted by just about every vertebrate on the planet but they're very species specific and one section of the mouse's nose is very sensitive to these proteins. The researchers already knew that the mouse vomeronasal organ could pick up pheromones from other mice, but the idea that they were sensitive to those of other mammals is new. And in their tests, they placed mice, which had an inactive vomeronasal organ, close to, the, uh, close to an anaesthetised rat, so it wasn't going to eat them. And because the mice couldn't smell any of these mups, the mice showed no signs of fear, and one even curled up and went to sleep next to the rat. So it shows that the visual spectacle of a rat on its own doesn't play a part in predator recognition.
0: That's fascinating because we've known for a long time that mice will avoid areas where cats have been and where rats have been and people knew that cat urine was very, very big deterrent for these species and there must be something smelly about the cats and rats that were putting the mice off. And another interesting point is that if the mice catch a particular parasite, one called toxoplasmosis, which is actually carried by cats and wants to get back into cats because that's where it reproduces and then gets out of the cat and and back into the environment and then into mice. If mice get infected with that parasite, they lose the ability to be scared of cats and rats. The idea being that the parasite wants the mouse to be eaten by the cat so that then it completes its life cycle. So it'll be interesting to see whether the toxoplasmosis works by deactivating the input from that vomeronasal organ, the thing in the nose that makes the mice... Smell the cat.
1: Yeah, it must be interfering with these maps or the, the take up of, of these maps somehow. But uh, what it means is that the, the fear of the cat, rat, and snake smell must therefore be hardwired since these mice have been bred in labs for nearly 80 years and I think very few would have met Mr. Tibbles at any point. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Well, uh, another thing, I mean, from the sense of smell to another special sense, which is the sense of hearing, um, there's an excellent study which has been done this week. It's actually published in the journal Cell by researchers at Stanford, Stefan Heller and his colleagues, and they present a way to recreate in the dish what are called hair cells. Now, these are not the things that make you hairy on the top of your head. They are specialised cells that are found in the inner ear of... All all animals, effectively, that want to hear things because these are the cells that have the ability to transduce or convert sound waves into brain waves. They respond to tiny vibrations in air and they, they actually turn those tiny vibrations into electrical signals that the brain decodes to understand sound. Now, the problem is these cells are really hard to study because A, there's not very many of them and B, no one until now has succeeded in making them grow in the dish. And if you can't grow them in the dish, you can't work out how they work properly what kills them, what makes them grow more, and so on. And the big problem is that in humans, mammals, you only have so many of these cells and they have to last a lifetime. If you lose them, you then go deaf. And so with so many of us facing deafness in the future because of exposure to lots of loud noises, we'd really like to know how to make these cells, A, not get killed in the first place, and B, perhaps how to replace them, because some animals can. Birds, for example, can replace their hair cells if they die. What this group have done is to show in mice how they can take skin cells... Turn those skin cells with a cluster of genes being added to them into stem cells, and then by exposing those stem cells to various growth factors, they can fool them into thinking they're back in the embryonic ear and they develop into these hair cells. And they're able to make hair cells that behave and look under the microscope identical to these normal hair cells that you would see in an intact person. So, this is really encouraging. It shows for the first time it's possible to make them. Now we can make them, we can study them, we can find out what makes them vulnerable, and possibly we can find out how to make more of them.
1: So that could be really helpful when there's this figure of, you know, up to 30% of us becoming deaf by the age of, well, old.
0: (laughs) Indeed, because scientists are suggesting that uh, with the present noisy environment in which we inhabit, perhaps one person in three could end up losing their hearing by old age. And uh, if we can find out how to replace or renew or encourage to renew or make less vulnerable these hair cells, then we're certainly on the way to helping to solve what's going to be a really big problem in the future.
1: Fantastic news.
0: Thank you. Also in the news this week, researchers have discovered why Tibetans who have a taste for the high life are much better able to tolerate low oxygen conditions that are found at altitude compared with their lowland living counterparts. It turns out that they carry at least 10 unique genes that enable them to do it. And to tell us more from the University of Utah is Tatum Simonson. Hello.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you for asking. If you could, Tell us first of all, um, what was the reason for doing this study? What were you aiming to find out?
2: So we're interested in identifying the genetic basis for high altitude adaptation. And what's interesting is that several research groups have done an excellent job characterizing sets of physiological traits that are unique to native high altitude inhabitants. Um, And these studies have suggested that populations have adapted to this extreme environment, but the genetic basis was not entirely known.
0: So, in other words, by living at high altitudes for many generations, these individuals must have accrued some kind of genetic changes that mean they're much better adapted to living there than, say, me.
2: That's exactly right. So Um, how did... Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say, how do you approach that problem?
2: So, it's only recently that we've been able to actually look at our genetic code, or DNA... And by looking at single changes in the DNA sequence, uh, we can identify regions that have been subject to what we call natural selection, Um, the idea being that these variants have been beneficial for some particular region in a particular environmental setting and have been passed on through the generations um, and allowed individuals to survive.
0: The thing is, there are three billion letters in the human genetic code. So how do you home in on the bit that you think might be important? In this instance?
2: Um, So what we use uh, is an approach that looks at what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms or tags across the entire genome Um, and we identify blocks or regions of the genome that exhibit a certain signature and the signature that we see with natural selection is that um, basically you have a whole region that's increased rapidly in the population and that leaves behind a, um, a certain sign that we can look at and compare it actually with the rest of the genome. And it really stands out as a, as a striking signal um, for us to then go in
0: and analyze. So in other words, if you take people who live at high altitude in Tibet and have done for many generations and you compare them with the rest of the world who don't live at those kind of altitudes and you're looking for specific hot spots in their DNA that keeps cropping up time and time again in the Tibetans but not in other people this points you towards thinking in that region of the genome there must be some beneficial change that helps these people to survive where they do.
2: That's exactly right. And we were able to do that um, by comparing the Tibetans with uh, publicly available information on both Japanese and Han Chinese populations.
0: Those populations presumably being significant because they're going to be relatively closely related in terms of human ancestry to to the people you're studying. So you can iron out a lot of other changes.
2: Exactly. And they've typically lived in lowland regions, which is key for our study.
0: And when you did this, what did you find? Did you home in on some genes that, that you do think enable these people to survive where I would struggle?
2: Yes. So as you mentioned, we have at least 10 genes um, that we've identified. And what's interesting is that two of those genes were actually correlated with a certain physiological trait, which is unique to Tibetans. And that is the fact that Tibetans exhibit hemoglobin concentration, which is similar to somebody, say, living in London, so somebody at or near sea level, yet they're all the way up at 4,000 meters. So any non-adapted individual would increase their hemoglobin to compensate for the oxygen-deprived environment. So when we compared two of our selected regions of the genome to the hemoglobin levels we measured, we found that two of them actually are associated with this decreased hemoglobin level.
0: So in other words, if I went up to a very high altitude, I would compensate for the low oxygen by increasing the amount of hemoglobin. This helps right. me to get more oxygen around my body, but has negative consequences because my blood's going to become thicker, stickier, gloopier, therefore yeah. I'm more likely to have consequences like high blood pressure and heart attacks and strokes.
2: That's right. That's exactly right. But the
0: Tibetans don't.
2: But the Tibetans don't. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, I mean, this area definitely needs more research. We know that This isn't happening, but it also could be sort of a side effect of something else that's been advantageous and selected for so that they don't need to increase their hemoglobin because they are already so efficient, um, perhaps through some other mutation.
0: And I guess just to finish off, the benefit of doing this kind of work is that there are situations where people who don't live in Tibet above 4,000 meters, but nonetheless have very low levels of oxygen in the bloodstream. I'm thinking people who have lung problems, lung infections, blood clots on the lung, maybe their whole body is exposed to low oxygen because of drowning or carbon monoxide poisoning or something. Understanding, therefore, how people cope naturally in these environments might provide a, a clue as to how we develop medical therapies to help people who are acutely in that situation.
2: Yes, that's exactly true. So this information can definitely help researchers develop therapies or even drug targets for, um, for people who have various uh, Amounts of, of you know oxygen deprived disease or that sort of a thing.
0: Is that where you're going next with this?
2: Um, we do. We hope to go forward. Uh, the idea being, if we understand why people do well, then perhaps we can we can help those who aren't doing as well at high altitude,
0: including one or two climbers, perhaps.
2: Yes, that's true (laughs) Tatum, thank you
0: very much That's uh, Tatum Simonson, she's from the University of Utah and she's published that work this week in the journal Science and incidentally, if you'd like to read a bit more about any of those news stories you can find details of them, including the references on our website it's all at nakedscientistscom forward slash news The Naked Scientist News Flash Reacting to the world's best science For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com